Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things, these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of it. Lord, we pray that your, your spirit would be here now helping us to understand your word. Lord, may you have free reign in this place to convict our hearts, to challenge us, to encourage us in Christ. Lord, help us to see Christ clearly today and to worship him more fully and to go out and, and share him with the world. Lord, we pray that you are glorified in our midst. Help me to speak clearly and truthfully to your people today. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I think we can all admit that we're in a, a very strange period in history. Uh, we've experienced things in this last year that we have never experienced before, nor did we think that we would experience them at all. The pandemic has tested us. Politics have exhausted and discouraged us. Widespread aggression has even frightened us at times. Perhaps understandably, people are asking questions in response to what's going around us. They're wondering what the future holds. You or someone around you may be asking some of these questions that I've heard. Does this craziness mean that the end of it all is, is here? It's coming soon? Doesn't the Bible tell us that when things start getting hard, the end is near? Uh, this one I've heard. Are vaccines the mark of the beast described in Revelation? Is Jesus coming back this year? These are all questions that I've heard and um, seen on social media and, and even in person. It's so easy for us as humans to be enthralled by the future or try to predict it. It's so easy for us to spend all of our time trying to understand the significance of our current moment. We swallow every bit of news that we can, trying to understand uh, why this um, moment is significant. We watch YouTube prophets, for example, to try to figure out what they have to say. We try to make sense of the current times by really twisting God's word. I honestly believe that this comes from a, a fountain of pride in some way from their culture and even from us this springs from. We think that nobody else in the history of the world has suffered as we have suffered. No one else has endured trials like this. Nobody has suffered like this. This must be the end of all things. But for the truth, we need to look to Jesus. We need to see what he actually said 
He alone holds the future, as we sang, in his hands. The future seems very uncertain and scary to us, but God holds the past, the present, the future in the palm of his hands simultaneously. That's why we need to go to God's word. It, it grounds us. It helps us understand in a broad sense what the future holds. We see that Jesus is coming back one day. We see that he is going to make all things new. We see that he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, right every wrong, and bring justice to every injustice. Going to God's word helps us understand the significance of our moment here and now. This is what our series that we're starting today is all about. It's called What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today. And it focuses almost exclusively on Jesus' own words. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 24 and 25, studying what's called Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus is saying it on top of the Mount of Olives. He's sitting with his disciples and talking. They're overlooking the temple at Jerusalem. And this is where we go to understand Jesus' own words about what the future holds. So our text today, as you know, is, is Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14, the first part of our series. It includes the transition to and the beginning part of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. So we're, we're diving in right away, and we're kind of dropped right after a scene where Matthew, who's writing this down, has just um, accounted for three chapters worth of uh, time in the temple. So they're in the temple for roughly three chapters and, and right as we're dropped into this passage that we're in today, the, the disciples and Jesus are heading out the door. They're heading out of the door of the temple outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus has some compelling comments about the future. So in our passage today, I want us to look for uh, the three things Jesus declares that uh, the near future held for his disciples. The first is the great destruction we're not starting off well here. The great destruction is what uh, um, the disciples had in store for them in the near future. So let's look at those first two verses of chapter 24 together. It says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're, they're leaving the temple of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are feeling a little bit like a, they're in a touristy mood, it seems. They got their fanny packs on. They got their camera phones out. They're taking pictures. I'm just kidding. They didn't have that stuff. Um, but they are walking out. They do seem to be in a touristy mood. They're admiring the temple as they walk out. These guys would have uh, been blown away at the grandeur, the size, the immensity of the city of Jerusalem in general. And most definitely, they were um, admiring in the temple. The greatest sight to see in Jerusalem was undoubtedly the temple erected by King Herod. It might have been the greatest structure in the world at that time. So I ran across this quote about the grandeur of the temple while studying this week. It said, even Herod's enemies could not restrain their praise for the temple buildings. And the rabbis declare that whoever had not seen Herod's building has never seen a beautiful building in his life. It was a beautiful building, this temple, and it was enormous. It was built using blocks of white limestone that were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide, 
Some of the foundation of the temple, not the temple itself, exists to this day, and they're estimated to weigh around 400 tons. That's just one block. This temple was massive. This structure would leave even modern people in awe today. It most definitely was going to blow the minds of some first century small town fishermen, which is what most of the disciples were. In their minds, this temple looked like it would last for eternity. It was surely indestructible, which is why Jesus' response to their awe about the temple is so amazing and so breathtaking. He doesn't respond with an, I know, right? Like the temple's amazing. It's so big and so beautiful. It's, it's so cool. He doesn't respond like that. He responds by essentially saying, you see this temple? The building you think is so amazing? The building you think is super impressive? The building you think will always stand? The building you think will be a beacon of strength and splendor for all time? Well, there's a day coming when the destruction of this temple will be so utterly complete that not even a single block will be stacked upon another block. It will be thoroughly and entirely annihilated. The disciples would have been clearly shocked, as we're going to see in in a few verses in a little while um, at this moment. This is quite the prediction Jesus is making. They might be asking themselves, the disciples, if even this magnificent temple is going to be destroyed, how poorly is everything else around it going to fare? How poorly am I going to fare? This would have been a terrifying thought. So like the disciples, all of us are shaken to the core sometimes when we see something that really seems strong and steadfast and and indestructible get shaken itself. I mean, many of us just 12 months ago could have said that the U.S. economy and our, our medical expertise cannot be shaken. We are unstoppable. Well, as was proven, we'd all be wrong if we would have thought that. And we ourselves were shaken, seeing something so strong, so steady, get shaken to the core. If even that can't continue to stand tall, then how can we, how can I, in the midst of something like that? This prophecy of Jesus is is so shocking because it predicted the impossible. It's like saying an unsinkable ship will sink and quite literally an immovable object will be moved. Later in in verse 34, not part of our passage today, but just for some context, Jesus says that this generation will still be around during the destruction of this temple. So when he says this, he's not predicting like millennia from now when there's like greater technology, someone's going to come in with a bulldozer and take this thing down, no big deal. He's not saying that. He's not saying that, hey, over millennia, it's going to erode because of the elements and it's going to slowly erode. No, this is going to happen soon and it's going to be violent. His prediction, like all of Jesus' words, ended up being true. Sure enough, clear as day, if you look in your history books, A.D. 70, the Israelites' Roman occupiers invaded Jerusalem with a terrifying force and, among many other atrocities, took the entire temple down. Not a brick was standing upon another brick. It was tore it down so um, completely that all that remains today is the substructure. The temple was, and still is, completely gone. But Jesus isn't just predicting this cataclysmic event in the future. He is doing that. But this verse um, serves to set the rest of our passage up that we're going to be in for, for, uh, for months. 
but primarily, this is an exclamation point to what's been happening over the last three chapters. And I want to just mention it really quick, just so that you can have some context of what's going on. These two verses are kind of the exclamation point for Matthew 23, sorry, Matthew 21 to 23. So what, what is Matthew describing in there? Well, first thing that happens, Jesus goes into the temple. What does he do? He turns over all the tables, right? He's angry at the money changers who are defiling the worship area there. He's, he's angry at them. The whole rest of the time at the temple from Matthew 21 to 23, I'll just summarize a few things that are happening. The religious leaders are arguing with Jesus and trying to catch him in his words. They fail. Jesus tells a bunch of parables that are all aimed at revealing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Jesus ends the time in the temple uh, saying, pronouncing seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees for their perversion of the truth and the perversion of the temple. And then right as Jesus is leaving the temple, he laments and mourns over his people that aren't following him in faithfulness to God. So in that context, it's a little easier to see what's going on. This is not just a, a quick passing comment. This is like the exclamation point that Jesus is saying about the temple. The disciples are admiring the temple as they head out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is essentially saying, God is done with the temple. And why was the temple so significant to the people of Israel? It's because that's where God's presence is. Right? You see imagery of God's presence throughout the Old Testament when the Israelites are leaving Egypt. Uh, they, they follow God's presence in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Later when they're wandering in the wilderness, uh, God's presence is, is dwelling in the tabernacle, the tent that they bring with them in the wilderness. Now that they are in the promised land, the, God's presence dwells in the temple. It's the most holy place for all Jews. It's where they go to worship. It's where they go to offer sacrifices. It's where they're supposed to go and repent of their sin. And Jesus basically says, it no longer serves a purpose. Wow. Wow. You can see why so many people were made angry by what Jesus said. This was a scandalous statement for a first century Jew to make. In fact, this is one of the primary reasons why Jesus was killed. It's because he's making these accusations against the temple, these predictions about the temple. Why can he say that? It's because Jesus is God's true presence. As Jesus leaves the temple, the glory of the Lord goes with him, never to return to a building. As the God-man, as God incarnate in a human body, Jesus is the perfect presence of God himself. Unlike the temple building, there's no barriers keeping non-Jews or Gentiles out. There's, there's no need for frail and sinful priests to intercede for the worshiper. There's no need for a repentant sinner to bring animal sacrifices to satisfy the wrath of the Almighty. All can come freely to Jesus, the very presence of God Almighty. No need for the right family heritage no need for spotless righteousness, no need for a valuable sacrifice. Jesus provides all those things for you. All we must do is believe him. As he will eventually go to the cross and die, we must admit that that is the fate that we deserved, 
that he actually took our place on that cross. As he will eventually, uh, later in Matthew, raise from the dead, we must cling to him for new life in Christ and trust that he will do the same to our bodies one day soon. Even Jesus' footsteps illustrate what's going on in this passage here. As he walks, he's actually fulfilling a prophecy. Ezekiel eleven twenty three says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Literally, Jesus is walking from the center of the city of Jerusalem, the temple, to a mountain to the east of the city, the Mount of Olives, and it says the glory of God is going with him because he is the glory of God. He is God. The temple is now spiritually empty and soon to be broken down. Authentic worship at the Jerusalem temple is finished. True worshipers will now worship at the true temple in the presence of God Almighty at the feet of the God-man, Jesus Christ. What is your temple of worship? And is it strong, steady, eternal? The Jerusalem temple barely finished construction when it was torn down to completion in AD 70. Are our common temples of worship like money, sex, power, politics, or accomplishment eternal? No. They're all going to fail us. Either now, in seven years, or 70 years, they're all going to fail us. If you want your worship to be authentic in uncertain times like we're in today, bring your worship to Christ. Bring it to Jesus. He is the holy of holies. He is the perfection of God's presence Unlike even the strongest buildings around, he is eternal. Even if he is destroyed, which he was, he will raise again, which he did. He doesn't require travel to a specific spot to worship him. He doesn't require payment. He only requires faith in him. So I'd encourage you all today to go to him. This passage, as I said, concludes the last three chapters of Matthew in a very dramatic way, in an exclamation point. It also sets up the next section, next section that we're going to be in for the next several weeks as we discuss the Olivet Discourse. So I want to move on to our next point. So Jesus declares three things that the near future held for his disciples. We learned the first was the great destruction. The second is the great deception. The great deception. So let's look at verses 3 through 8 together. They read like this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things, these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So this prediction of the destruction of the temple is such a catastrophic event that uh, the disciples seem to think this must be a sign of the end of the entire age, the end of the world as we know it. 
This event would have been so violent and devastating that it was difficult to even, for them to even picture a world without the temple at the center of it. People disagree on this, but it seems to me that the disciples are actually lumping all these things together, right? They're, they're saying, hey, Jesus, tell us when the temple is to be destroyed, which also is when you're going to come back and the end of the age is going to happen. Tell us when that event happens. They think this because the destruction of the temple is so catastrophic, they can't imagine a life without it. They put these things two together, but Jesus separates them. Jesus separates the two answers. He essentially says, actually, the destruction of the temple is actually far sooner than you, thought, than you think. And my return is actually a bit further away than you think. So I know studying the end of the age, and many of you are very fascinated by the, the end times theories and things like that. Those things are all really fascinating, and many of you want to learn more about that. That's later in the series, I'll promise you. But in our passage today, Jesus is actually talking exclusively about events that are going to happen before A.D. 70, before the destruction of the temple. Verses 4 through 8, as we just read, show a bunch of different things, a bunch of difficult things that are coming the way of the disciples. False teachers will lead the people away from the truth. Wars, famines, earthquakes. These sound super severe to us, but these, Jesus says these are actually just the beginning of birth pains. Many people actually use uh, verses 4 through 8 to determine some kind of pattern to see uh, if the end is coming soon. And you may have done this too, and it's okay, God's word can be difficult to understand at times. Uh, but the person who says, uh, look, there's war over there, and there's, there's famine over there, and last month we had an earthquake over there, the end must be near. You've heard someone say that, right? But really, these verses, verses 4 through 8, are intended to discourage that kind of thinking. Jesus says these things will happen, but the end is not yet. These negative things, unfortunately, are going to be common throughout the history of the world. There will be famines, there will be earthquakes, there will be wars. The passage, although it's oftentimes referenced to prove that we are in the last days, was actually spoken in order to discourage us from being trigger happy and uh, connecting the dots really quickly. And like, oh, we must be in the end times. And the disciples would experience some of these things in the years to come. I looked it up, and between when this was spoken in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, there were some pretty significant world events by them that would have shaken them to their core. There was an earthquake in Asia Minor in AD 61, earthquake in Italy in AD 62, earthquake in Jerusalem, AD 67, Widespread famine in AD 46. So I don't blame the disciples for uh, lumping these two events together, the temple's destruction with Jesus' return. The mere thought of the destruction of something so strong and so central in Israel's life must have been disorienting, to say the least. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it like this. How would an American react to our country being invaded, our government overthrown, our landmarks destroyed, the Capitol, the Pentagon, the White House, the Golden Gate Bridge, Mount Rushmore, the Hoover Dam, all images of strength and grandeur, all gone. How would we react? We'd probably think this is the end too. We've never seen anything like this. This must be the end. And I will admit that I would be terrified if something like that happened. Our whole lives would be turned on end. 
So I certainly don't blame the disciples here. The fall of Babylon didn't mean the end. The fall of Jerusalem didn't mean the end. The fall of Rome didn't mean the end. The fall of any country, even if it's our own, does not necessarily mean the end of it all. I think the reason the disciples, we and so many others so quickly jump to thinking that we're in the end days is because we all have a bit of generational snobbery, right? We all, we all think that we've suffered more than others. We think that nobody has endured like we have. But the truth is that our generation is likely not that special compared to other people and what other generations have had to endure. Is our pandemic really worse than the bubonic plague? Really? Is our economy really worse than the Great Depression? Are our wars really worse than third century China where 40 million-ish people lost their lives? We'd like to think we're special, but are we? So the question I have for myself and for all of us is that have, have we been duped by our circumstances into thinking we need to hunker down, get in our bunkers and just wait it out, wait for the end to come and then everything will be okay? Have your eyes lowered from the mission that God has given you and lowered your eyes onto your circumstances? We need to listen to the words of Christ here. Our situation is not unique, even though it seems like it. These things are going to happen. God is not finished working yet, and he wants to use us. So in our passage, Jesus declares three things that the near future held for his disciples. We've learned about the great destruction We've learned about the great deception. The third and final is this, the great declaration. The great declaration. Let's finish by looking at verses 9 to 14. Jesus declares some pretty profound things. So I want to read this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So in case we are still unsure, Jesus continues to remind the disciples and us that the Christian life is not is not just cushy and carefree. In addition to the wars and natural disasters that everyone on earth has to deal with, the Christians have additional things as well that are going to make it even harder. For example, the disciples had hatred headed their way. Whether they, wherever they traveled, they were going to be outcasts. They were going to be uh, looked down upon for the rest of their lives and hated. The disciples would watch in the years ahead as fellow brothers and sisters turned their backs on Christ in order to stay safe from the persecution of Jewish religious leaders or uh, the Roman Empire, sacrificing the truth of the gospel to, to save their skin. False teachers would rise up and lead many astray from the truth. The love of God and of others, which is supposed to characterize Christians, which we learned in our last series, will grow cold and worthless in many of their fellow believers. And the disciples had persecution headed their way. Brutal deaths were in store for many of them. There was trouble ahead for the disciples. There's trouble ahead for us. But in verse 13, Jesus says, 
that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the response of a faithful disciple in the midst of persecution, false teaching, lawlessness, Christians fighting Christians, Christians walking away from the faith, is to remain faithful to the end, to persevere. Jesus gives them and us the promise of salvation, just not the promise of short-term safety. When Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved, he's not saying that we're saved because we endure. We know that we are saved by faith, but it is a faith that endures. Perseverance marks the already saved. Perseverance is a marker of the redeemed by faith. And Jesus concludes our passage today with with a statement that seems like it's kind of coming out of left field, but I'm going to explain it. He says in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's been talking about the destruction of the temple. He's been talking about the hardships of all humans, the additional hardships of believers. And now he starts talking about the spread of the gospel. What is is he trying to say? He's saying that even though the odds are stacked fantastically against the disciples, the gospel will still go forward. The gospel, the message of Christ's incarnation, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his miraculous resurrection, his ascension, his future return, that good news will go to the ends of the earth. It's unstoppable, Jesus is saying. The truth is that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world. And before AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, the apostles would preach the gospel to the world, to the known world at that time. So much gospel spread had occurred that the apostle Paul can say in Colossians 1.6 that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. And now it's our turn to continue to push that forward, to push that forward. And we are an unstoppable force as the kingdom. It is a a privilege to be a part of God's mission of redeeming and reconciling people back to him. So with the the Super Bowl happening this last weekend, I thought I'd put it in football terms to hopefully help um, some people understand. Imagine a team enters the locker room before the big game and they're getting ready for their, their coach's pep talk. And their coach's pep talk goes like this. Before the game even begins, you're going to put the wrong jerseys on, you're going to be deceived into putting the wrong colors on, and you're going to have to run back into the uh, locker room and in a frazzle put the right clothes on. After that, you're going to hear rumors that the other fans actually want to try to physically harm you. We're playing this game on the West Coast, so there's probably going to be an earthquake as well. Your teammate who you love the most is going to give up halfway through the game and throw in the towel. The teammates who remain through the game will be at each other's throats half the time. Nobody is going to be cheering for you. You'll be unfairly penalized the entire game. You'll be constantly turning the ball over because of dumb mistakes. But if you persevere, you will hoist the Lombardi trophy. The opponent cannot and will not defeat you. They may have all the advantages, but they cannot win. They don't stand a chance. I've seen the future, and I can guarantee you that if you persevere, you will win this game, period. 
The disciples had destruction in their future. They had deception in their future. But they were told told to go and declare the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And through the power of God working through them, they did that. By the time the temple in Jerusalem was broken down, the new temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, believers in Jesus, the church, was well on its way to being constructed. Now it's our turn. There's a destruction and deception in our future. It will not be easy at all, but we have a mission that's urgent. What's amazing about this passage is, is it says Jesus says that the troubles of this world will not hinder the progress of the kingdom of God. Instead of these troubles, um, will actually give us opportunity for kingdom advance. When you think about all that's happening in the world right now, none of it can hinder the gospel from moving forward, from the kingdom of God from expanding. All the highs and lows actually give us an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is solid and firm and steadfast and eternal, looks awfully appealing in a world that is a roller coaster ride. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, he shares the Lord's great commission where Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That doesn't just mean the disciples. That means all people who align themselves with Jesus. All Christians. Us, if you have trusted in Christ. Now, I admit we are in a difficult situation right now. But there have been difficult seasons before, and there will be more in the future. What are we focusing on right now in light of our future? Are we busy on the Lord's mission? Or are we too busy trying to calculate the current events to even care about the mission of God? I want to encourage us to put down our calculators, our calendars, our our balls of yarn, trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus says he doesn't even know when that's going to happen. Only the Father. So don't even try. When that day comes, when Jesus comes back, I assure you it will be abundantly obvious. It's this difficult tension. We're supposed to not be fascinated and overly obsessed with timing Jesus' return, but we are supposed to be ready. At any moment, Jesus could come back and we should be ready. We should be ready by faithfully being about his business, which is being on the mission of God. Let's stop trying to decode future or current events and start loving our neighbors. Let's stop estimating when Jesus will return and and start sharing the gospel with those who desperately need to know about Jesus. We get to tell people about the God who loves them the God who is returning to make all things right, the God who knows we live in a broken world and who is the solution to all of our problems, the God who has a sure, steadfast, eternal, unshakable kingdom. This world of injustice, hatred, disasters, wars, and pain is passing away because Jesus is coming back to make it new. God has given us the mission to love him, love others, and make disciples. How much of our lives are devoted to that mission? Is it some? Is it a little? Is it all of our lives? 
This mission is our lives' work. Nothing else will last. Not even the Jerusalem temple lasted. But your work in God's mission of making disciples, I promise you, will last for all eternity. So I want to encourage us to focus on the mission of Christ. He has come to save us. We have been sent out in the midst of this brokenness to bring people to the only hope in the entire world, Jesus. Love God. Love your neighbor. Share about Jesus. May the kingdom be expanded and Jesus be glorified through these simple practices. And may the Holy Spirit give us the strength to do so to the renown of Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word and your mercy by sending Christ to bring your presence here to earth among us. Lord, we thank you that anytime, anywhere, in any circumstances, we can go freely to the feet of Christ and ask for forgiveness and worship him. Lord, we can repent of our sins anywhere, anytime. Lord, we are grateful that you have brought a greater temple in Christ. We can come and worship at his feet. Help us to do that even now as we continue to sing songs and and worship you. Help us to trust you, Jesus. Cast all of our sin upon you and ask again for your forgiveness and grace. We know you'll be faithful to give it. Lord, help us to be about your mission. Lord, we, uh, we trust that you are using us, that you alone can empower us to do this impossible mission that you've given us. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of what you're doing to reconcile the world back to yourself. Thank you for that privilege. Help us to be faithful in that. Lord, we know that your gospel will go forward to the ends of the earth. And we just are so grateful we get to be a part of it. Help us this week, Lord, to share Christ with someone who desperately needs to know it, to show his love to someone who desperately needs it. And may you get all the glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.